So as we carry on in our study through the Gospel of Mark, um, we come now to chapter 11, and we come now to the, in the ministry of Jesus, we come to the final week in the life and ministry of Jesus prior to, you know, this, this week now is leading to those final events of his death and ultimately of his resurrection. And as we come to the passage that we just read together, what we see here is that this is the first and only time that Jesus allowed himself to be publicly proclaimed as the king of Israel. He was the king of Israel, and he, you know, on various occasions, he told people that he was the Messiah, but he never allowed a public a proclamation of his Messiahship. And, and so now he does. And now he does for a specific reason, because that announcement was reserved for this specific time. For, for this very day, God had through the prophets declared that there was a day that would come when the Messiah would be revealed to Israel. And this is that day. So maybe just refresh your memory. There, there was a time in the Galilee area where Jesus had fed a multitude of people, the, the loaves and the fish. He multiplied that. And it says that when the people you know, saw this miracle and, and were blessed and benefited by it, they desired to come and try to make him a king by force. They wanted to force him to, to publicly proclaim the fact that he was the Messiah. And he did not allow that to happen. And he did not allow that to happen because that was reserved for this very day. So the passage that we just read together is, um, is a passage where we have a prophecy coming together. We have uh, three prophecies that are being fulfilled in this one event. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to look at the subject of Bible prophecy by looking at these three prophecies uh, specifically and we want to see um, just the certainty of the prophetic word. You know, God has given us prophecy for a number of reasons. One reason is prophecy proves divine authorship. How do we know that the Bible is really God's word and not man's word? Well, one of the ways that we know that, and probably the, the best way we know that, is because of prophecy. Now, prophecy is the foretelling of the future, and it's foretelling the future with 100% accuracy 100% of the time, and that's what you have in the Bible. You don't have that anywhere else. You don't have that in any other religious literature. Uh, you don't have that with any other you know, person in history who's ever maybe claimed to have a prophetic voice. Uh, the most common one that you, you would hear about um, in more recent times would be somebody like Nostradamus. You know, people will say, oh man, well, you think the Bible has prophecy? Nostradamus, you should hear his prophecies. Nothing like it, no comparison. And so it's the built-in proof of the inspiration of scripture, but it's also just great encouragement to us to know where things will ultimately go. We know the future. 
We know where it's all going to end. We know what's coming. And I mean, it is kind of bittersweet because there, there's some bad stuff before the good stuff comes. We know that because scripture tells us. But what scripture tells us and what prophecy tells us is that there is a God um, purposed end to all things. God is going to bring everything uh, ultimately <clears throat> to the place that he wants it to be. And that place is um, an everlasting kingdom of righteousness and peace and justice and joy and all of those things that, that we do long for in the world. So that's what prophecy does for us. And it's important for us to remember that. And I know for myself, there's times I just, I will just decide, I'm going to read the book of Revelation just because I need to be reminded of where everything's headed. I need to be reminded of those great promises of God and, and where things are going. And, and so that's part of the purpose of prophecy. But here in the passage, like I said, we have three different prophecies all coming together in this one place. But, but let me also, once again, go back to the point of this is the one and only place where Jesus allows himself to be hailed as the king. Now, he's doing that because he is, of course, shortly going to, um, he's going to go to the cross. And he's going to do that publicly. And he's going to do that with the, the purpose of the message of the cross going to all the world. Uh, J.C. Ryle, someone that I've quoted a few times on our journey through Mark, um, a Bible commentator and former uh, Bishop of Liverpool, uh, England back in the 18 and early 1900s. Uh, he said this, and it's just too good to not repeat. He said this, he said, Jesus came to Jerusalem to die. And he desired that all Israel should know it. When he taught the deep things of the spirit, he often spoke to none but his apostles. When he delivered his parables, he often addressed none but a multitude of poor and ignorant Galileans. When he worked his miracles, he was generally at Capernaum or in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. But when the time came that he should die, he made a public entry into Jerusalem. He drew the attention of rulers and priests and elders and scribes and Greeks and Romans to himself. The eternal son of God was about to suffer in the stead of sinful mankind. The great sacrifice for sin was to be offered up. The great Passover lamb to be slain. The great atonement for the world's sin about to be made. He therefore ordered that his death was eminently a public death. He overruled things in such a way that the eyes of all Jerusalem were fixed upon him. And when he died, he died before many witnesses. Now, remember Jerusalem, this is the Passover. This is Passover week that they're heading into. Every Jewish male was required by the Mosaic law to be in Jerusalem for the Passover. So this would swell the population of the city to hundreds of thousands and the Jews, not only did they live, you know, scattered throughout the land of Israel, most of the Jews lived outside the land of Israel. So they would come from all over the world at that time. 
And, and so there would be just this great multitude of Jewish people there, and they would be there to witness ultimately the crucifixion, but they would be there also to witness this event. And so you can be pretty certain that in the homes that uh, were packed with people because of all of the visitors on this night, you can be absolutely certain what the conversation was about. It was about Jesus of Nazareth riding into Jerusalem, coming down the Mount of Olives into the East Gate and being hailed as the Messiah. That would have been the conversation. And so here, I want us to see, I want us, like I said, to focus on the the subject of prophecy. So I, I want to look at the prophecies that are given here. And there are two prophecies that are stated in the text. And then there's an additional prophecy that the other two prophecies point to. So we're going to look at three prophecies. But we have here in Mark and also in Luke, they give us one prophetic reference and that's Psalm 118. And so turn in your Bible to Psalm 118. Um, Matthew and John give us a reference to Zechariah chapter 9. And we're going to go to Zechariah chapter 9 in a moment, but you can't turn to both places at the same time, right? So go to uh, Psalm 118, because that's where we're going to start. And then Psalm 118 and Zechariah chapter 9, they point us to another prophecy, and that's a prophecy in Daniel chapter 9. So we'll end up in Daniel chapter 9. But as you have turned to... um, the psalm there, 118. I want to read verses 19 through 26. And think about this in relation to the passage that we all read together there in Mark 11. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I will go through them and I will praise the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous shall enter. I will praise you for you have answered me and you have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. So as we read that, that psalm, um, you, can, you can hear the echoes in the passage there in Mark. So Mark quotes from part of it. And I want to point out to you uh, three aspects to it that um, Mark quotes from. First of all, save now, I pray. That's The word save now is the word Hosanna. So Hosanna means save now. So when they were shouting Hosanna, Uh, You know, sometimes we even have worship songs that will include the Hosanna. The meaning is, is literally saved now. So the people, as Jesus is coming in to Jerusalem, the people are shouting Psalm 118. Now, as the people would go to worship, and especially at these festivals, they would have certain psalms that they would they would recite together or sing together. And this is, this is what's called the Hallel Psalm. Hallel means praise. Like the word hallelujah, 
Hallelujah means praise the Lord. It's two words. It's Hallel and Yah, who is God. And so the Hallel Psalms were Psalms of praise. So the Hallel Psalms started in Psalm 113 and they finished in Psalm 118. So this is the final of the Hallel Psalms. And so all of this multitude of people, as Jesus is coming down this path into Jerusalem, they are shouting, save now, Lord. And then they're saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father, David. Luke adds that to it. And so they are proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah. Now, Jesus didn't tell them to do that. Jesus didn't prevent them from doing that. That's the, that's the thing. So they were doing this spontaneously. And Jesus allowed it because, as I already said, this was the time and the place for this to happen. Now, we also read in the psalm, this, this is the stone the builders rejected. Now, when we get to the next chapter of Mark, we're going to find that Jesus, as he goes into the city, as he goes into the temple first and deals with the the money changers and all that. Then he's going to, during that, this next week, he's going to be in dispute with the religious leaders. And he's going to quote Psalm 118 to them. He's going to quote this back right here, this passage, the stone which the builders rejected. He's going to say to them, haven't you read this? Because they were rejecting him. And he's going to say, haven't you read the stone that the builders rejected? So Jesus is quoting Psalm 118. But then, and this is really the key, uh, verse 24 says, this is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. You see, this psalm was prophesying this day. Now, we as Christians, we read in this psalm, Psalm 118, verse 24, this is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. And if we're having a really good day, we say that. You know, this is the day the Lord has made. That's great. We can say that. But what we need to know is the first uh, real meaning of the psalm is that there was an appointed day on which the Messiah would be rejected, the people would publicly hail him as the Savior as he came in. It would happen on this day. So this is the day the Lord has made. Now, the second passage is Zechariah chapter 9. So um, turn to Zechariah. And the easiest way to do that might be to go to Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, and just go to, um, just go over to your left. Uh, it's the second book over from Malachi. So Malachi, Zechariah. Um, Sometimes these are a little bit challenging to find. And, you know, I've been teaching the Bible for 40 years, and sometimes somebody says, turn to this book of the Bible, and I'm like, oh, where is that now? Wow. <laughs> I think that's old age catching up with me, actually. So, Zechariah 9. Now, the psalm is written about 1,000 uh, BC, 1,000 years before the time of Jesus, Psalm 118 was penned. Zechariah was written about 
four to 500 years before the New Testament period. So there's, you know, there's, there's five to 600 years between these two prophecies, but they're speaking about the same thing. So Zechariah chapter nine, verse nine, this is what it says. It says, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Jerusalem, O daughter of Zion, shout, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so this is, this prophecy of Zechariah is happening. This is the day. Jesus, you remember here in the story, we, we read it. He tells him, you know, go, go bring me this, this donkey in this, in this uh, colt. And if somebody says to you, oh, it's tied up over here, go get it. If somebody says to you, hey, what are you doing taking that? Just say the Lord needs it. And they'll let you go. And that's exactly what happened. They went to get the, the animal. The people said, wait, what are you doing? They said, the Lord needs it. Okay. And so Jesus takes now the donkey and he mounts upon it and he rides into Jerusalem and he comes in in this fashion, this, this lowly fashion, um, just as the prophet said. Now, the the key thing here is to note that the message is to the daughter of Zion, um, the daughter of Jerusalem. Zion and Jerusalem are more or less synonyms. But again, remember, this is the time for Jesus to be revealed to Jerusalem, which is the center of the nation, which is the spiritual capital of the nation. This is a time for him to be revealed as the Messiah. Now, Jesus has been to Jerusalem many times before, right? Um, Jesus was in Jerusalem as a baby. He was dedicated in the temple as a baby. But there was never a public proclamation. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He grew up in the region of Galilee in the city of Nazareth. He's visited Jerusalem, but now he comes in. And this is the fulfillment of the Zechariah prophecy. Behold, your king is coming to you. How do we know who our king is? He's going to come riding on a donkey. He's going to come humble and lowly. And so we see that Jesus comes in humility. He doesn't come to judge. He doesn't come on a stallion to make war on the city. He comes humbly um, and, and peacefully. Now, these two prophecies, they point us to a third prophecy, and that's the prophecy in Daniel chapter 9. So if you want to just turn again uh, a few pages over, you'll come to Daniel. And the ninth chapter of Daniel, we see these two, these two things come together. Uh, we see the, the prophecy of the day, and we see the prophecy of the Messiah coming on that day right here in Daniel chapter 9. So uh, verse 24 of Daniel chapter 9, it says this. It says, 70 weeks are determined for your people and your holy city. Now, the word weeks means simply seven. So the translators 
put in weeks. But for us, that sounds like, you know, seven weeks is 49 days. Uh, but it's not weeks of days. What we discover is it's actually weeks of years. So this message comes to Daniel at the end of a 70-year period of captivity that the, the Jewish nation has been in. So Daniel has been part of that captivity. He's in Babylon, and the, which, which has now become actually taken over by the Persians. But there, Daniel is, um, he's thinking and praying and meditating in relation to the fact that the 70 years that were prophesied against Israel, they're coming to a close. And he knows they're coming to a close. So the whole ninth chapter is, is a, a record of Daniel praying and seeking God about this conclusion of the 70-year period of captivity. So the angel Gabriel comes and speaks to him, and this is what he says. 70, in a sense he's saying, 70 more sevens are determined upon your people and the holy city. And listen to what the outcome will be at the end of the 77-year periods. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. So at the end of these 77-year periods, everything will be completed. That's pretty much what it's saying, just to summarize it. It'll all be done. Sin will have been dealt with. Uh, reconciliation will have been made. Everlasting righteousness will be brought in. Prophecy, vision, all that stuff, it'll, it'll be completed. That's what it's saying. And the most holy will be anointed. So that's what's going to happen at the end of this period of time. The question is, well, when does the period of time start? And as we read on, the answer is given. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah, the prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. So there shall be 69 sevens is what it says. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. So let's pause and talk about this for a minute. So the angel tells him there's, there's 77 year periods and then everything will be done. The, king, the, the everlasting kingdom of God will be brought into um, its reality. That'll happen at the end of this period. But he then breaks the period into 69 and one. So there's going to be 69 seven-year periods and something's going to happen. And then that's going to leave one seven-year period that's yet to be completed. And so when does this period begin? Well, it begins from the command to restore and build Jerusalem. So there, there's some point where there's going to be a command that's given and it's going to be a recognizable command and it's going to be to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. From the, from the giving of that commandment, there's going to be 69 seven-year periods or that equals 483 years. 
So from the time of the command, there's going to be 483 years until this event. Um, so here's what we have. The, the big question is, when's the starting point? Now, there were two decrees that were given by uh, the Persian kings in regard to Jerusalem. One was given to Ezra and one was given to Nehemiah. The command to Ezra was first, but, but the decree that was given to Ezra was not to rebuild the city, but to rebuild the temple. So at the end of the Babylonian captivity, when the Jews were free to go back to the land of Israel, um, they were under Persian rule. Israel was under Persian rule because the Persians had conquered the Babylonians in the meantime. And so they were allowed to go back, but they couldn't build the city because the city represented autonomy and, you know, potential rebellion against the empire. But the king allowed them to rebuild the temple. It was their place of worship. But even after the temple was rebuilt, the city was still in rubble. And in Nehemiah chapter one, we have the story of how certain people had visited Jerusalem and they came back to Nehemiah with a report that it is just in devastation. It's desolate. It's just rubble. And, and Nehemiah, who was the cupbearer for the king, the Persian king, Artaxerxes at the time, he was so depressed and so discouraged over this. And he began to pray that God would somehow help him in some way do something to restore Jerusalem. And so when he goes before the king to do his normal work, the king notices that he's depressed. And the king's like, you've never been like this before in my presence. And actually, in those days, if you were depressed before the king, it could mean your life. But he's depressed. The king noticed it. He asked him about it. Nehemiah says, well, how can I not be when the city of my fathers lies in rubble? So the king says, well, what do you want to do about it? He says, I want to go and I want to rebuild it. And so King Artaxerxes gives a decree to Nehemiah to go and to restore and rebuild the city walls of Jerusalem, not the temple. So this is the starting point. This is the command to restore and build Jerusalem. So this is when the 483 years start to count down from this moment right here. Now, that's, that's all good to know, but what date was that? Does anybody know the date that Artaxerxes gave that? I mean, actually, somebody decided, I'm going to figure this out. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to calculate this out. I'm going to go back into the ancient records and I'm going to find out when this decree was given. A man named Sir Robert Anderson. He was, uh, at this time, he was the head of the Scotland Yard, kind of like a Sherlock Holmes type of a guy. And uh, he took it upon himself. He's a believer. So he says, I'm going to figure this out. Now, other people have tried to do it. The interesting thing, they've all come out with a kind of a similar sort of a time frame. But Sir Robert Anderson, I, I like to go with his um, conclusion on it. So based upon his calculations, it was March the 14th, 445 BC, that that decree was given. Our March to us, it would have been called a different thing at the time, but it would be our March, March 14th, 445 BC. So that's the starting date. So the starting date for 483 years is March 14th, 445 BC. Now, Sir Robert Anderson decided he was going to calculate it out in days. 
And he based the days on the Babylonian calendar of 360 days. And this is what he concluded. That from March 14th, 445 BC, 483 years would equal 173,880 days. And on that day, the next event would occur. That day takes you out to April 6, 32 AD. Now, if you know anything about Passover, you know that it falls in March or April. So it would take you out to the Passover week. We know that Jesus began his ministry We know exactly when Jesus started his ministry because Luke tells us that his ministry began in um, the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. So you can calculate from the, the beginning of the ministry of Jesus. Jesus began his ministry when he was about 30 years old. So 30, 31, 32, 33, somewhere around there, This prophecy of these days is fulfilled. And what happens at the end of the the 483 years or the 173,000 days, uh, what happens? Look at verse 26. The Messiah shall be cut off. But back in verse 25... Know therefore and understand that from the going forth at the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince. So that's the event that that happens. The decree is given here and 483 years later, Messiah will come. And that's what happened. Jesus came at that time. But the prophecy goes on to say Messiah will be cut off. And that's what happened, right? Right? The word here, cut off, means to be killed or executed. And notice it adds, but not for himself. Jesus, of course, did not die for himself. He died for us. So Daniel gives us the exact day, and this ties us back to Psalm 118. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. So that's why those people, they don't even know what they're doing. They're shouting, save us. Oh, son of David, save us. Hosanna, save now. And, and this, they're fulfilling the prophecies of the psalmist and Zechariah and of Daniel. So it, it's all so amazing. It's amazing to me that the Jewish people themselves still haven't seen this. I mean, it's right there in their text. If you took a Hebrew Bible and if you could read Hebrew, this is what you would read in it. And you can get an English translation of a Hebrew Bible and read it, and this is what you read. This is what it says. I was just reading an article this morning uh, that came out of Israel. If you go to Israel today, there's all over, especially Jerusalem, there are these gigantic posters and there are these giant billboards uh, and, and they all say Messiah is coming. But the Messiah they're talking about is a guy who was a rabbi from Brooklyn. His name was Schneerson, Rabbi Schneerson. And back when he was alive, his followers said that he was the Messiah. 
They believed that he was the Messiah. Now, when he was on his deathbed, they were all gathered around him on his deathbed, waiting for him to make the announcement that he was the Messiah. He never did. He, he died. But they just didn't want to believe that he wasn't the Messiah. So they just had a celebration this past week honoring him as the Messiah. So a Jewish guy from Brooklyn who died in the 90s, in the mind of some Jews, is the Messiah. And you think, wow, what spiritual blindness. You know, and they even commented like, well, what good's a dead Messiah? And one was, well, he can't really bother you. <laughs> you know, can't really tell you what to do. But some say, no, but he speaks to us, you know, telepathically or, you know, he's communicating things to us. And so he's teaching us how to be better Jews and more observant of the law and, and so forth. But, but the incredible blindness, because, because the text right here, the text literally tells the Jewish people the day the Messiah would come. And he came. And that he would be cut off. And he was. But then look what it goes on to say, which is even more fascinating. So Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. So what every Jew should know is that the Messiah had to come before the destruction of the temple. When was the temple destroyed? It was destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans. Now, notice it says, and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. There, there's no question about who destroyed it. We know the Romans destroyed the city of Jerusalem in 70 AD. It's a historical fact. Everybody knows it. But notice here, there's a prince that's referred to. And look what it goes on to say. It says, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The Romans will do that. The end of it shall be with a flood until the end until the end of the war, desolations are determined. Verse 27, then he, who is he? He is the person previously mentioned, the prince. He shall confirm a covenant with many for one seven. Here's the final seven. So remember, we had 69 seven-year periods to get from the decree to restore and rebuild till the Messiah. There's one seven-year period left. Some people ask, well, how come... How can we believe that, uh, you know, there's a seven-year tribulation period because of this passage right here? This tells us there's one seven-year period left. And the seven-year period is going to be implemented by this prince of the people who are to come. Who is this prince? Well, this prince has not come onto the historical scene yet. He's coming, but I want you to notice that he's connected to the people who destroyed the city and the sanctuary, meaning he's connected to the, to the, what was known as the Roman empire. So, you know, people today, when we talk about Bible prophecy, because of the way the world has changed so much, you know, back in the seventies and eighties, uh, we had this pretty clear picture, like, you know, the antichrist is going to come out of the revived Roman Empire, which will be the European economic community back in those days. And, and, you know, we just thought that, well, that's exactly what's going to happen. But then the world changed. And 
the Soviet Union collapsed and the Islam arose. And now, you know, now there are people who will tell you they've written books that, um, you know, the, the future Antichrist, that's who this prince is, by the way. This, this person, they will say, well, this person's going to be a Muslim. This person's going to come out of the Islamic world. Um, the text says he's going to be connected to the people who destroyed the city and the sanctuary. Those are the Romans, no question about it. So that brings me to the conviction that still uh, all, everything in the future is going to revolve back around what we knew historically as the region where the Roman Empire had its greatest power. And of course, Rome was the, the center of that. So here we have um, these prophecies that are fulfilled. But this is the second thing that we need to see. These prophecies were part one of the prophecy. See, all of these things were part of the prophecy. Now, the, Daniel, uh, the Zechariah prophecy, for example... So we read the Zechariah prophecy, right? That, you know, Jerusalem, your king is coming to you. He's lowly, he's humble, he's sitting on a donkey. But we didn't read verse 10. If we read verse 10, we would see that it says this. His dominion will be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. So you see, Zechariah puts, see, we know it now as two comings. Nobody knew then that the Messiah was going to have two comings. Some Jewish rabbis thought there would be two messiahs. It was confusing. And this is one of the reasons why Jewish people today reject Jesus as the messiah because, well, he didn't set up the kingdom. He didn't bring in everlasting righteousness and peace. So Jesus can't be the person. But we see that he is the person. There's not two messiahs. There's one messiah. There's two comings. And so what's left to be fulfilled, what's left to be fulfilled is his dominion shall be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. So Zechariah is saying the Messiah is going to come to Jerusalem. He's going to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, and he's the one who's going to set up the kingdom that is going to fill the whole world. So when we say we believe Jesus is coming back to establish God's kingdom on earth, we're saying that because that's what the Bible teaches that's what the prophets taught. That's what Jesus said himself. And we'll see that more when we get to chapter 13 of Mark here in a couple of weeks. So Zechariah, we see verse 10 tells us the ultimate fulfillment there. And then in Daniel, I want you to flip over if you're still in Daniel, just flip over to chapter 12 for a second. Chapter 12, verses one through three. This is, again, the second part. Remember, the prophecy was that uh, everlasting righteousness, uh, end of sins, uh, reconciliation, all those things are going to be, that, that's going to be the outcome. So look what it says in chapter 12, verse 1. At that time, speaking about now that, that final seven-year period, at that time, Michael shall stand up. Um, Michael is the, the great you know, prince over Israel. He's referred to in scripture. He's an angelic being like Gabriel. Um, he's the great prince that stands watch over the people and over your people to Daniel. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation. So this is 
now that, that final period of time. Even to that time, there's never gonna be, uh, never was a time of trouble like what is yet to come. And at that time, your people, Daniel, the Jewish people, shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, and some, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever. So you see, again, the ultimate fulfillment, the intended end of what the first coming of Christ began is the great hope that we have for the future. This is our, this is our hope. And you know, every once in a while, I have to just open up to these prophetic passages and just renew my hope. <laughs> you know, if I'm on Twitter too much, <laughs> which I am all the time, according to my wife, but if I'm watching too much news and the craziness that's going on in the world, you know, I get depressed. I get discouraged. I just, man, Lord, what, where, is it, where is this going? Well, I really do know where it's going. But sometimes I just need to remind myself. I need to go back and I need to read over these great prophetic passages and just remind myself that God fulfilled to the day exactly the prophecies concerning the first coming of Jesus. He's going to do the same thing with the prophecies concerning the second coming of Jesus. And that, that's a hope that we have. That, you know, when... I would imagine, I know it was the case before I was a Christian, I was pretty concerned about what was out ahead of us. You know, right now, this week, I think a lot of people in Southern California are concerned about uh, what's ahead of us here in the next few weeks. We had two earthquakes in two days. One of them, you know, 7.1, that's, that's nothing to joke around about. That's a serious earthquake. So we've got all kinds of people right now worried about when's the next one coming and how big is it going to be? Well, an earthquake's just, an, uh, it's kind of just a, you know, a real reminder of, of just the earthquake that's going on around us socially and culturally, the craziness in the world. And so when, when you're at that place where you just think, man, wh where is this going? And what you know, everything just seems so uncertain and, and so potentially frightening. Where, where does this go? You go back to the prophetic scripture and you think this is where it's going. This is, this is where it will end. It's going to get worse before it gets better, but I know the end of the story. I know where it's going. And that's one of the things that prophecy does for us. And so let's receive that comfort, that encouragement, and, and that you know, strength from the prophetic word. And we can know for certain because we've already seen that God kept his word right to the very day, right to the very day. Now, in closing, here, here's the thing. Of course, we don't know when everything's gonna come down. And I think the big mistake that, you know, there are some people that prophecy is just their thing, that, that's kind of all they ever preach on is prophecy. And what they what they constantly do is they try to, they try to set, you know, they might not set an exact date. Some do, and they always are proven wrong. Uh, but oftentimes too, they try to say, well, this is the time and this is going to happen. That's a mistake, I think. 
here's, we need to know this is going to happen and it's going to happen when God decides it's going to happen. And, you know, the world's, I, I think, pretty ripe for judgment, but it's been ripe for judgment many times before. And if you lived back in the, you know, 1930s in Europe, and of course, into the 40s in the Second World War, you would have thought back then that, of course, this has got to be what the Bible talks about because how could it get any more insane than this? Well, we passed through that time and it, these things didn't happen. But other things that have happened from then. And so, you know, you're never going to hear me say, on this date, get your robe on because Jesus is coming. <laughs> you know, I'm never going to say that. And, and I mean, those of you that have been here for a while, you know, with me as a pastor of the church, I'm, I'm not even going to predict anything because everything can change. But regardless of when this is going to happen, and I do kind of think it could happen. And, you know, in somebody in here's lifetime, I used to think it might happen in my lifetime, but that's getting away from me. So I, I don't know for sure yet at this point, but you know, somebody in this room might happen in your lifetime, but you know, we don't know, but that doesn't matter. God knows. And that's what matters. And we do know it will happen. And we know that we can take comfort from the scriptures because this is where it's all going to go. This is where it will ultimately end. But as we think about that, what do we do in the meantime? Well, what we do in the meantime is, um, I mean, it's, it's very clear what, what our mission is. And I'm going to give it to you in three points. Number one, get the gospel out near and far. That's what we're, that's what we're to be about. We are gospel people. We're people that God has saved from our sins and made his children and brought us into his kingdom. And guess what? He wants more people in. And guess how he's going to get them in? Well, one of the ways is he's going to use us. And so we need to get the gospel out near and far. And I say that specifically in that order because, you know, we do a lot of stuff that's far. We have worldwide missions. We've talked about that many times before, and that's wonderful. And God's doing great things with that. But we have a mission field right across the street. We have a mission field right up the road. We, uh, everybody who's not a follower of Jesus is potentially a follower of Jesus and somebody that needs to hear the gospel. And so we have got to get the gospel out. And, you know, sometimes we, we make this really complicated. You know, getting the gospel out, you know how simple it can be? And, and in some cases where it has to start, it just starts with a friendship. It starts with a cup of coffee with somebody. It starts with, hey, why don't you come over to my house for dinner? It starts with building a relationship. You know, sometimes, and I know that this is sort of programmed, I, because I know back in the 70s and 80s and even 90s, I know that when you talked about evangelism and even stuff we would teach on evangelism, you know, it was always, you got 10 minutes with this person, you got to get the gospel to them, you got to get them to say the sinner's prayer, and then you got to move on because there's more people to, you know, catch for the Lord. And in some cases, that's how it works. But, you know, there are plenty of people that, that does, it doesn't work for them. That for them is like, no, I, I, I don't even want to, <laughs> I don't want to talk to that person who's going to be like that. There was a survey done recently. I just read this in a book uh, that was written by um, actually one of my professors at school. And he, he said that in the survey, 
they asked uh, non-Christians about conversing with Christians or going to church or things like that. Like, what do you think about that? And the thought was, they're, they're going to say, we don't want that. We don't, you know, we don't want to go to church. We don't want to talk to Christians. They didn't say that. This is what they said. They said, we're open to conversations and even to, you know, maybe visiting a church. But here's what we don't want. Here's their two fears. Fear number one, they're going to be judged. Fear number two, they're going to be pressured. So you know what? It's not my position to judge people. That's God's. So we don't have to approach somebody judging them. We approach them with friendship and love and kindness and, and that kind of thing. And, and pressure at the, at the end of a 20-minute conversation with a person, do I have to say, all right, let's say the sinner's prayer right now. Come on. No, I don't. Now, in some cases, maybe that's actually the moment has arrived where you will do that. But, you know, I think sometimes Christians, we put pressure on ourselves or somebody else puts pressure on us. And we think that that's what we've got to do. And it gets super awkward. And we're sitting there like, oh, no, this is going to be so awkward when I say this. And it is awkward. You know, look, I've had people, uh, you know, I'm in conversation. I ask them a question or, you know, maybe do you want to know more? Do you want to pray or whatever? I've had people say yes. I've been in the same, you know, similar kinds of conversations. I've had people, you know, I, I, you want to do this or that. And shut your mouth. Or I'm going to punch you in the face. No, I don't want to hear anything more about this. And I'm like, okay, I will shut up <laughs> right now because God's the one who's at work here. I, I don't have to close the deal. That's God's thing. But... I do have to open my mouth. I do have to have a conversation. I do have to love people. I do have to befriend people. I do have to have relationships with people because that's how people come to Christ. They come to Christ because other people connected with them. And so that's number one. Get the gospel out near and far. Secondly, build one another up in the faith. That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to be building one another up. We, a strong church is an uh, effective church. And God's given us tools to build one another up. But you know what? we got to be together if we're going to build one another up. And I can't just lock myself in my room and, and uh, zone out on Netflix I've got to engage. I've got to be with other believers. I've got to be with people. I've got to have those times. Now, you know, I, I zone out on Netflix sometimes, but, you know, if, I mean, some people, that's just their life. That's all they do. And they isolate themselves and they don't go to church and they're not connected to a community. And subsequently, they're not getting built up and they're not being strong and they're not going to be effective. So we've got to do that we've got to build one another up in the faith. And then thirdly and finally, you know, we just need to live holy lives. Holy lives that are, it's our sacrifice of praise to the Lord. You know, uh, here, here's what a holy life is going to do. Holy life is going to bless you. It's going to speak to other people and it's going to please God. That's what it's going to do. And so, so we live holy lives. And, and we live these holy lives really in response to God's goodness. I, I want to live, and when I say holy life, I'm not, 
you know, that, that can even be interpreted weirdly by some people. You know, holy life just means living in obedience to Jesus. You know, just, just living the way the Lord wants us to live. Just living according to his word. Loving him and loving others. That, that's, that's living a holy life. And, you know, God delights in that. And so I do it, yes, because I know it's going to benefit me. I do it also because I know that's the way other people are going to be impacted. But, you know, really, at the end of the day, I I just want to do it out of gratitude to God. Man, Jesus died on the cross for me. Jesus took my sins upon himself. God loved me so much that he, he sent his most precious possession, his son, into the world so I could be united to him. I just want to say, Lord, thank you. And this is the best way to do it by living the way he wants me to live and offering up the sacrifice of praise. It's the fruit of our lips as we just give thanks to his name. And so be encouraged. The prophetic word is absolutely certain and you can count on it. You can bet your life on it. You can stand on it and refer to it. Go back to it. Get comforted and strengthened through it, but also recognize that while we wait for these things to happen, we have a job to do. We're on a mission to get the gospel to people. So they too can be part of that eternal kingdom that Christ will establish when he comes again the second time. So Lord, we thank you for the great prophetic truths of scripture. We thank you, Lord, that um, this book, the Bible, uh, is, has a built-in proof of divine inspiration. And that's that you told us the future and you told it with exact detail. And so we thank you that we can have confidence in it today. And Lord, just give us a fresh hunger and thirst for your word and the things of the spirit. And Lord, as we think about where the world's headed and as we rejoice in the fact that you're coming again, Lord, help us to realize that we're on mission right now. And Lord, help us to get your word out. Maybe it's to the person we work alongside of. Maybe it's to the neighbor across the street. Maybe it's to the, uh, the, the guy or the gal in the gym that we're working out with or family, whatever, whoever, Lord, you know, people that just don't know you. Help us, Lord, near and far to get the gospel out. Help us, Lord, to commit ourselves to being built up in our faith and recognizing we can't do that alone. We have to do it together. And help us, Lord, to live for your glory to live obedient and holy lives before you. In Jesus' name, amen.